Welcome to The Advance, a podcast and video series on moving towards Christ-like maturity. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Advance. My name is Donovan, and I'm a pastor in Edmonton, Alberta, and happy Easter. Uh, I'm this podcast on Easter Sunday of 2020. It has been a extremely different Easter. We've had all sorts of different uh, realities, different complexities that we're facing right now. But um, it's been a really meaningful Easter as well. I think in the uh, disruption and in the lack of familiarity, my hope and prayer is that this Easter has been something for you that um, has caused you to ask some deeper questions. Um, Today is a special edition of the Advanced Podcast. I know it's only episode four, but uh, I really wanted something specific to Easter. And so I'm really looking forward to an interview that I'm going to be sharing with you with my friend Steve Kim. Steve Kim works for an organization called Apologetics Canada. And if you don't know what apologetics is, uh, he's going to explain it a little bit. But essentially, it's, um, it's understanding how we answer some of the harder questions about the Bible, uh, the historicity of the Bible, the events that happened in the Bible. Did they really happen? How can we be sure that the Bible is true? Um, how, how do we answer harder questions like if God's are suffering? Um, again, Steve will give a way better answer about what apologetics is. But uh, for now, uh, I just want to kind of whet your appetite. And so today we're going to look at the question of, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? It says in the New Testament that if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied above anyone else. And so I want to encourage you today, uh, as you watch this interview with Steve or listen to this interview with Steve, to ask the Holy Spirit to to reveal himself to you. And if you are somebody that's investigating Christianity or you have lots of questions about Christianity, my hope is that as you listen to this podcast, you can see that what we believe about Jesus is something that is rooted in history. It's not just this vague idea that we follow. Uh, Jesus is a risen king. He is alive. And if you have any questions about uh, faith or about what it means to follow or be in relationship with Jesus, please Send me an email, shoot me off a text or phone call if you know. I'd love to connect with you, and I'd love to, uh, yeah, just help wrestle with some of those questions with you. Um, But yeah, my hope is that as we look at this question, did Jesus really rise from the dead on Easter Sunday, that it would be really meaningful for you. And again, whether you're a Christian who's known Jesus for a long time, or whether you have lots of questions about Christianity, and today's just a good day to to look at this question, uh, I hope that you're blessed, and I hope that, um, yeah, that something out of this interview really speaks to you. Hello, friends. Just before we get to the interview with Steve, just want to let you know that uh, we do talk quite a bit about Jesus' death and crucifixion and go into some of the details of it. So, um, yeah, just just so you're aware, it may be a little bit graphic in that sense, but, um, yeah, I don't think we want to shy away from the reality of what happened. So uh, Steve goes into quite a bit of detail about it. So just letting you know in case you have kids around that may want to listen as well have this huge mullet at the end of the quarantine and all that stuff. I'm just like, me, eh? <laughs> I do my own hair. So, um, <laughs> exactly. and, one, and one benefit of this is that, uh, for one, I am basically immune to lice. True. Um, it's true. And secondly, that I look pretty much like Francis Chan. Awesome. Except people think I'm racist, you know, like because they think that all Asian people look alike. It's like, no, you actually look like. Friends. Yeah, I actually do look like it. Yeah. In fact, at the conference last year, um, yeah, I went up on the stage and I'm like, "Hey, my name is Francis Chen." And everybody started laughing, right? Because they they know oh, me. Oh, but yeah. apparently, there was a lady in the crowd 
who had seen me like before the conference and yeah. she was convinced that I was Francis Chen. So yeah. I had to go up there, crack a joke and break her heart. And so, so good. apparently I actually do look like him. So it's true. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, all right, here we go. <clears throat> do I need to record anything on my end or are you all good on your end? No, I'm fine with the, like the sound is not great, but it's good enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Sweet. Hey, Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Donovan. It's great to be with you. Oh, it's such, such an honor that you've chosen to, uh, to take some time today to talk to us about, uh, <laughs> yeah, about the resurrection. It's Easter Sunday. We're releasing this on Easter Sunday, 2020. And mm. what a different Easter than we were expecting, hey? Yeah, yeah, no kidding. I don't think anybody saw this coming. No, I don't think so. This is wild. Um, but uh, I think today I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We're going to take mm -hmm. some time to talk about the, the resurrection. This podcast <laughs> typically is going to focus on different ways that we express our spirituality and grow in our relationship with God. And one of those ways is through something called apologetics. I'm going to let Steve talk about that in a little while. But um, the reality is um, <clears throat> we, as followers of Jesus, we believe in a, in a true risen Savior. We believe that the Bible is true. Mm -hmm. Uh, these are historical accounts. We believe that um, the things that we read actually happened. And apologetics really gets to the heart of that. Again, I'll let Steve say a bit more. But before we jump into that, uh, I'd love to just get to our, the people that are listening or watching just to get to know you a little bit, Steve. So why don't you tell us who you are? Uh, tell us a little bit about your life, your family, if you'd like. And um, yeah, just maybe something you're really passionate about. Yeah, um, I was born and raised in Korea, um, southeast of Korea from a city called Daegu, which uh, if you've been following the news, you know that uh, Daegu was the city that was hit the hardest in South Korea. And so um, the, with this pandemic, it's been really interesting. I called my, uh, my extended family there and this was a couple months ago and they were saying, yep, nobody's going in or out. They're just all staying home. Um, so definitely feeling the impact there. But anyway, that I was born and raised there. Uh, and then at the age of 14, my family moved to Canada, to the Vancouver area. And uh, I lived there for um, about 24, 25 years. Uh, I spent half that time in the Vancouver suburb area there. And then the other half in the Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, which is where I met Donovan, by the way, uh, for those of you viewers or listeners uh, who don't know our history together, we met at Columbia Bible College in Abbotsford in the Worship Arts Program. Um, so that was 2000, fall of 2005 already. Yeah, Goodness, five. time flies. Yeah. Time flies. <laughs> yeah. When I met Donovan right away, I told myself, this is a guy I can get along with. And uh, sure enough, right, we've been good friends since. Um, and then uh, almost two years ago now, uh, my family decided to move to the Edmonton area. And so I'm a, I'm a heck of a lot closer to Donovan and his family now. Um, yeah, my wife's side of the family is all from Alberta. And there have always been this bit of a tension between, between them, right? Oh, you should move to BC. Oh, no, you should move back to Alberta. And we gave in and we decided to come to this frozen tundra Um you know, leaving the, the promised land of Southwest BC behind. But, uh, but I've been really enjoying being close to family. Our kids have been really flourishing. So uh, I'm married, obviously. Uh, we're going to be celebrating our 10-year anniversary this May. And uh, we have two little ones, 
uh, Maya and Tavin, six and four. And life here has been pretty awesome. Uh, one thing that I'm really passionate about, um, well, I, I do like music. After all, I, that's how I got to meet Donovan in the worship arts program at that Bible school there. And uh, I'm a bass player by trade. And I always point out that I'm a bass player who happens to know how to play guitar, not the other way around. Um, and so I'm a bass player first and foremost. And I'm the other way around. I, I play guitar. When I play bass, I play like an electric and it just sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> You're too hard on yourself. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's a little bit about who I am. Um, and, and I started working with Apologetics Canada, I guess almost six, seven years ago now. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, that's the kind of work that I've been doing since. Cool. Um, so yeah, why don't you just tell, uh, we'll, we'll get to know more about Apologetics Canada at the end, but let's talk a little bit about that word apologetics. There may be some yeah. of our hearers that have never heard that word before others that have heard it and may just have a lot of confusion about it. So what does yeah. that word mean and why, why is it important for us as, as Christians or even people that are interested yeah. in Christianity to know about it? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. When you hear the word apologetics, because of what the word sounds like, some of our viewers might be thinking, wow, you know, that sounds like a very Canadian discipline, right? What are we apologizing for in Canada this time? Yeah. Um, actually, despite what the word sounds like, it has not, nothing to do with saying sorry. Um, it comes from the Greek word apologia, and we read this word, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where Apostle Peter says, uh, in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and uh, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus, but do this with gentleness and respect. And the word there to give an answer is apologia. Um, so if you go to Greece today, in modern Greek, they still use that word apologia in the context of court of this court of law, where the defendant, um, the defense lawyer, actually makes a case, mm -hmm. right, for uh, his or her client. That that word is still being used, and um, so that's where the word apologetics comes from. And I explain it to people usually this way. Um, I don't know about many of your viewers, but I grew up in the church. I grew up in a very solid Roman Catholic home, and although I find myself uh, an evangelical pastor now. But uh, I grew up Roman Catholic, grew up in the church, and I've always felt that the church has excelled at telling me what to believe, but not so much why. So, for example, uh, I was taught that God was real. Um, I accepted that. Uh, I figured the priests and the nuns and my parents, they knew better. Um, but then at some point, just kind of trusting them at their word wasn't enough. I, I actually had to look this up for myself. I'm like, why do I believe this? Why do I, why should I think, why do they think that God is real, right? Uh, another one, which we're going to talk about today is the, the centerpiece of Christianity is, of course, um, the resurrection. But why should I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, simply because the Bible tells us so. Uh, I mean, even there, that contains a lot of um, kind of assumptions about it, right? That, that the Bible is reliable and all that kind of stuff. But what reason do I have to actually think that, right? So um, in my early 20s, actually, uh, actually, let, let me take a few steps back. When I was 16, my father passed away. Mm 
And it was at that point that I realized that this faith that I had wasn't mine. It was something that I'd inherited from my parents. Mm. And, um, and so I was like, well, I don't know the reasons for, for my faith. And so I started drifting away. And in my early 20s, I actually walked away from my faith, renounced it, called myself an atheist for a number of months, <clears throat> excuse me, before eventually I came back uh, and I discovered that there are all of these all of these questions and objections that I was wrestling with, um, by far the most, most of them were age old questions. It wasn't anything new and Christianity, the church actually has a very rich intellectual tradition. Uh, the church produced a lot of some of the greatest Western thinkers, um, scientists and so on and so forth. And, and so I started tapping into that and I realized, Oh my goodness, like this is, I mean, a little bit of apologetics in high school would have saved me so much grief, but uh, I don't know, maybe some of your viewers can resonate with some of that story, especially if they grew up in the church, but uh, that's what apologetics means. I, I look at it as more of a, an intellectual care for the soul. Yeah. And how would you encourage those of us that may be listening that may either be skeptical about Christianity or mm -hmm. maybe are legitimately having questions and seeking, how would you encourage, what, what would you encourage their possible, posture to be as we have this conversation today um first off what i would tell them is good for you 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 are thinking for yourself you're looking in into things um questions are good uh, i would even argue that skepticism in a sense is a christian virtue <laughs> um, the church has a long history of different people asking tough questions and wrestling with them and all, all of that stuff and you are even though you might not be a christian you are right in line with with that tradition um what i would encourage you to do is uh be careful of your own confirmation bias right uh, critical thinking isn't the uh, the sole domain of the atheists and agnostics. Um, it is also a lot of Christian thinkers uh, also exercise critical thinking, and many average Christians as well. Many don't, but many also do. And so, uh, don't don't assume that just because we come from a religious perspective that somehow this is to be dismissed. Um, dismissing something just because it is religious is itself actually fallacious. And so uh, I just encourage you to have an open mind, mm -hmm. uh, look at uh, both sides of the arguments or more than two, maybe, right? Multiple sides of the arguments, make up your mind for yourself, um, but just come at it with uh, mm -hmm. a bit of a humble attitude. And I have to do this too myself, right? I, when I talk with a, with a skeptic, I try my best to be humble and say, well, my skeptic friend might have a point here, right? Mm -hmm. and, um, and I just keep digging that way. And I would encourage my, uh, mm -hmm. I, I would encourage our viewers who are not Christians to do the same. Oh, that's great. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's just really important to be open to something new and something different. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think wherever you're at watching this, friends, um, again, as I said in the intro, if you have any questions, my email's right there. Uh, yeah. You know, I'd love to chat more one-to-one uh, -one, uh, for sure. So yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I think perhaps one more thing I might add is um, many 
non-Christian friends and neighbors that we have, uh, they come from some kind of a church background. When I was uh, going to high school, most of my friends were atheists and agnostics. And, but the interesting thing was almost every one of them had come from some kind of a church background. Mm. And the challenge there is that if you've come from some kind of a church background yourself, you might think to yourself that you know what Christianity is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, and this is really an, an indictment against the church, but if, the, if your background, if your uh, sort of an intellectual background in these matters is your Sunday school, then there's way more to learn about Christianity than just that. So I would just really encourage you, whatever preconceptions that you have about Christianity because of your upbringing, yeah. hold it with an open hand. Uh, there, there's likely uh, way more to the story of the gospel than what you grew up with. I just want to encourage you to do that. Yeah, that's so good. And, and I, I think it's really important just to um, yeah, keep that in mind that, the way that people may have shown Christ or shown Christ to you in the past may not be consistent with what the Bible says about who Christ was. And, um, and I I wish I could apologize on behalf of people that have abused authority or things like that. We're not going to get into a lot of that today, but just encourage you to, yeah, like Steve said, be open. Um, Before we jump into the the resurrection specifically, Steve, um, one of the things that I'd like to, we could chat about this the whole podcast, but what do you, in the midst of this COVID crisis and in the midst of apologetics and trying to answer some of the tougher questions, like I'm sure a lot of people would say something like, why is God allowing this to happen or Mm. things like that? Um, What would you say, um, what are you thinking about when it comes to COVID-19 and kind of what you see happening as far as what, you know, what God may be doing, but also how would you, um, yeah, how would you confront the, or not confront, but how would you answer the question about how do we see God's goodness even in something this difficult? Yeah, that's a great question. And I was putting some thought into this over the last, you know, few weeks that we've all been in quarantine. Um, I think there are several things to say about this. One is I am very hesitant to say, as some uh, Christian leaders have done, that this is an act of God that he is actively inflicting upon the world. It could very well be, um, but I just don't know. And I hesitate to attribute that to God. Uh, Having said that, it seems pretty clear to me that he is at least allowing this to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So then the question is, why does he allow this kind of pain and suffering? So um, if the question is, why does God allow suffering? Then the question to my mind is a little bit easier to answer. Now, this is where we need to be careful because this question can be both intellectual and emotional. And what's really uh, interesting about this question of suffering is that it's not just an intellectual question. It's something that we all experience. And we are currently experiencing a lot of suffering, many of us. Um, I, I'm tackling it more from the intellectual side of things first anyway. Um, but here's what I'm thinking. What is the end goal of humanity as far as the Christian worldview is concerned? Let's say Christianity is true, that God is real, that Jesus is who he said he was. The question is, okay, why does that kind of a God allow this kind of suffering? Um, That question, in a sense, assumes that the end goal of humanity is comfort, safety, happiness, those kinds of things. And I would argue that as far as Christianity is concerned, that is not the end goal of humanity. 
the end goal of humanity, as Jesus put it himself, is to know God and to know the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ, right? And so sometimes it is precisely, well, often I would say, it is precisely in times of suffering that we draw nearer to God. Remember what happened back in 2001 when 9-11 happened in New York. Man, the churches were packed out that weekend. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they saw some incredible suffering and saw times of uncertainty and they were reaching out for something to someone and they were drawn they were drawing closer and closer to god so it is entirely possible and i would say this could be a, a morally sufficient sufficient reason for god to allow this kind of suffering um the second thing to mention is that suffering this kind of suffering in a sense is not unique to our time mm -hmm. there is a lot of suffering happening all around the world every day we're just experiencing it in a bit of a different way. So it's a bit odd in a sense that we raise this question only now, now that COVID-19 is, is sweeping through the world. I mean, I, I certainly wasn't asking this question when SARS was breaking out a number of years ago, right? Um, why was that? Because it didn't really affect me. But now this is affecting me and I tend to, even as a pastor, I, I think about that question, right? And the final thing that I would mention is that even the fact that you're saying, okay, why does God allow suffering? What you're saying is it ought not to be this way. When you're putting it like that, you are already assuming that there is a way in which things ought to be. Yeah. C.S. Lewis put it this way, right? A man does not call the line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. In other words, if you're looking at the world and all the suffering saying, it's unjust for God to allow this kind of suffering. You're saying it ought not to be this way. So then the question is, given your worldview, where does that standard come from? How ought things to be? Yeah. Right? On a, I would argue that on a completely naturalistic worldview, if you think this world is all there is, that we're nothing more than byproducts of time plus matter plus chance, then it shouldn't be uh, surprising that this sort of a thing is happening. So already you're, appealing to some kind of a standard and I, I i think rightly you should look more into that where does this standard come from um yeah so those are some things that that's where my head is at often these days what a great answer and i think yeah because everyone is wrestling right now with a lot of mm -hmm. really tough questions and um and i think one of the things that as a pastor i just want to say is you know feel what you're feeling like Mm -hmm. allow yourself to lament allow yourself to grieve if you need to grieve yeah uh, allow yourself to ask these tough questions right now and whatever yeah. you're in right it's just super important mm -hmm. to not just kind of try to put it away you know uh, but to really you know let yourself sit with some of those questions is really important yeah um, if our if our viewers are not familiar with the bible um i would can i just encourage you to look through the book of psalms the book of Psalms is very unique in the Bible in the sense that whereas in all the other books in the Bible, God is the main character, the book of Psalms, the human is at the center. This is all about human response to things. And so you see a wide range of, uh, you know, reactions, some exuberant, you know, praise the Lord, and some where, you know, the Psalter is just really wrestling with suffering. Right and and suffering injustice and crying out to God and so there's a wide now what's in, interesting is the Book of Psalms about a third of it uh, 
I believe even more than that actually, but I think at least a third of it is lament. Mm -hmm. The Psalter is crying and weeping, crying out to God, why God, why is this happening to me? In other words, suffering and crying out to God and, and just, you know, uh, feeling what you're feeling, like you said, Donovan, is very much a part of the Christian experience as well. So if you're a Christian, there is a very perfectly legitimate place for lament. And don't neglect that, actually, because often Christians tend to think, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, praise the Lord, hallelujah, he is good to me. And this is all true, but don't do that in an inauthentic way. It's yeah. perfectly okay to say, God, I'm having a hard time. Life is really sucking right now. And yeah. I don't know what to do. I need you. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look, read the Psalms where there is lament, the Psalter always turns to God. And I think that should be our proper response as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so good. Um, so yeah, let's get to what we wanted to chat about today. It's yeah. Easter Sunday. What an amazing celebration today has been for a lot of us obviously not what we were expecting i'm sure yeah. <laughs> we usually gather in our churches those of us who attend church but today we gathered in our living rooms or offices with our families and mm. yeah, very different expression but um i'm looking through first corinthians 15 yeah probably saw this coming steve it yeah, said yeah, yeah. If christ had not been raised our faith is futile and we are still in our sins mm. um verse 19 says if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Yeah. So basically what Paul is saying that is if Christ didn't actually rise from the dead, Christians should be pitied more than anyone else because this is, this is like the crux of our faith. This is like yeah. the most important thing. And so you said the church has talked a lot about what to believe. We, we believe yeah. that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, but today let's talk a little bit about why. And before we get mm. into some of the apologetics and more of that, um, mm. more of the, the different arguments and thinking, Steve, why do you personally believe in the resurrection? Yeah. Um, one philosopher that I really like, he put it this way, that Christians have a double warrant um, to believe in the gospel. And, and I think he's right. It, my first warrant for believing in say the resurrection is that that is what the Holy spirit within me testifies Right, that he he is testifying that these things are true, so on and so forth. Now, the problem is that now this is great for me knowing that the resurrection actually did happen, so on and so forth. But it's not very helpful in showing to somebody else that the resurrection actually happened. Right mm -hmm. um, now, if uh, w one of our viewers, for example, is an atheist who doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, just telling that person, "Hey, I have this experience in myself," it's not going to be very convincing but there is also the the other side to it it's the second warrant and i think we have some good historical grounds to think that this actually happened yeah. um and, and so let me kind of get into that a little bit now this is this is how this is one way of looking at it when historians approach the new testament by the way, did you did you notice that? I mean, you you know this. You're a pastor, right? The Bible is actually not a book; it is a library, right? It's a library of 66 books, and the New Testament, where you encounter Jesus and the writings of Paul, um, it, it contains 27 books. Now, when historians approach, say, the New Testament, which is what we're more kind of concerned with here, 
they don't see a single book. They see 27 different documents that have been handed down to us. Now, this is helpful for Christians to appreciate because these documents, the, the New Testament, is we believe that it is inspired by God and it is reliable and true, so on and so forth. And that's great. But it is no less than ancient documents handed down to us from antiquity. Mm-hmm. Right? So when historians come to this, they don't assume that whatever the Bible says is true. When they approach the New Testament, they don't assume that it is the inspired word of God. They just look at it as man-made documents. Yeah. And what they do is they uh, look through, sift through these historical documents and see, you know, what's what's authentic, what's not. They have their criteria for determining those kinds of things. And what we see is whether you are uh, a Christian historian, atheist historian, a historian who happens to be agnostic or pantheistic, whatever, across the theological spectrum, uh, these historians generally, they generally agree on several facts surrounding the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And here, let me give you just five of them. Mm-hmm. One is that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion in the year 30 or 33 AD or mm-hmm. CE. Right? This, this is well attested. So uh, you might be wondering, okay, how do, they, how do they know these things? Well, there are different, I, I mentioned criteria earlier. So here's what you call the criteria of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And so one of them is called multiple attestation. So if a story or a tradition is found in multiple sources, they say, historians will say, okay, this is more likely to be true than not, Yeah. right? Um, and, and there are others as well, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. And this story of Jesus dying uh, by crucifixion, it's well attested both in inside the Bible and outside, outside the Bible. Yeah. So people generally accept it. Historians generally accept this. You always have the fringe, but we're, we're talking about, you know, what people generally accept. Um, and I'm not just appealing to sort of the consensus here, um, just because you can't determine truth by nose counting, but they have their reasons. Historians have their reasons for accepting these five facts. So one is, yeah, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion in year 30 or 33 AD or CE. Number two is that Jesus was buried by the Jewish councilman, Joseph of Arimathea. Mm -hmm. Number three, on the following Sunday of the crucifixion, Jesus's women followers discovered the tomb empty. Uh, Number four is the disciples saw what they believed to be Jesus's post-mortem appearances. Now, notice what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that it was Jesus. I'm saying the disciples saw what they believed to be Jesus yeah. uh, his, or his post, post-death appearances. Uh, number five, the disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, even though they had every reason not to. Um, mm-hmm. Let me hash this, out, this one out a little bit. Um, think about where, what, what they were doing. Like, here's a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and all of these, right? Jesus' disciples, their leader just died. They were expecting a Messiah like Moses, who would be this military and political leader who would drive out the Romans who uh, had colonized, right? Basically who had um, sort of, who had taken over Judea 
right, taking over Israel. And so they were looking for a Messiah, a military leader who would drive out the Romans. And that's what they were expecting in Jesus. Instead, Jesus got royally crucified by these Romans whom he was supposed to overthrow, right? So they were not expecting this. And, and, and this idea of um, a single sort of a resurrection. Now, the Jews at the time certainly believed in the general resurrection. What that means is they believed that everybody would be raised back to life at the end of history to be judged by God. And so they believed that everyone would rise from the dead. But this idea that God was going to raise just one person back to life, that was unheard of. And so they were not expecting this either. Uh, so they, and so generally what would happen is if your Messiah that you were following died, then you have two options, right? Either you go back to your family trade, so go back to tax collecting and fishing and so on and so forth, or you pick a new leader, pick a new Messiah, and the next best candidate would have been James, the brother of Jesus. But they didn't do any of that. Instead, they started claiming something very un-Jewish as to say, you know, God raised Jesus from the dead and he is the Messiah, mm -hmm. right? And so, and they went to their deaths for it. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. So those are the five facts. Now, here's the interesting part. Here's the fun part. Now you have to come up with a historical hypothesis or a theory that uh, takes into account all five of these facts. It has to be able to account for all of these five facts. And so, well, what kind of explanations or hypotheses might there be? Mm -hmm. The earliest one was that, uh, that the disciples simply stole the body and lied about it, mm -hmm. right? Um, in fact, the story that you read in the Gospel of Matthew about the Roman guards at the tomb uh, and so on and so forth, uh, scholars generally agree that this was an apologetic in the early Christian community against the rumors floating around in the Jewish community at the time saying that the disciples had stolen the body. So to counter that, um, the Christians recorded this account saying that, um, uh, that yeah, the, the disciples didn't steal the body. There were Roman guards at the tomb, so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, now, here's the problem with this theory, though, though is that, okay, according to this theory, Jesus died. Yes. So it ex explains the first fact. Jesus was buried, fine. The tomb was discovered empty. So far, so good. But the problem is the disciples saw something, someone they believed to be Jesus. Uh -huh. And they were willing to go to their deaths proclaiming the message that Jesus rose from the dead. So it doesn't explain the last two out of the five facts, yeah. right? Um, we have a good ministry friend at Apologetics Canada. His name is Jay Warner Wallace. He's a sort of semi-retired cold case homicide detective from the LA area. And he once told us, because he's a detective, he, he worked actually many conspiracy cases. And he said, in order for you to have a successful conspiracy, you need several things uh, to fall into place. One is you need to have as few people involved as possible. Yeah. Even having three, four, that's too many. If you have too many people somewhere, something's going to leak and the conspiracy doesn't last. And he's seen it over and over again. And he would say having 12 disciples, and, and it's just the 12, right? There, there were more. The 12 were the sort of Jesus' inner circle, if you will. But there were other disciples too, right? Um, but even just the 12 disciples, or 11 if you count out uh, Judas, that's way too many. And Jim, or Jay Warner Wallace, we call him Jim. Jim also says, 
you also need to be able to have instant communication with each other, yeah. right? So that you can get your story straight. Well, according to tradition, Thomas, the doubting Thomas died in India, right? James died in, in Jerusalem. Peter and Paul died in Rome, right? They, they were just all over the place. Yeah. Right? So it just doesn't work. And um, if you're going to have a conspiracy, now what Jim would say is, all crimes boil down to three things. People commit crimes for these three things and these three things only, he would say, or some combination thereof. Money, sex, power. Money, <laughs> sex, power. Now, by lying about this, what did the disciples gain? Money? No, <laughs> not, not so much. Um, sex? Well, not really, no. Uh, power? No, they were persecuted. You know, it just did, they, they had nothing to gain by lying about this. They were risking their lives, and in, indeed, many of them died proclaiming that message. Yeah. And so the, this conspiracy theory that the disciples stole the body and lied about it doesn't really work. Um, well, and even you said earlier that the appearance, or sorry, the discovery of the empty tomb was by women. And if they were going to make up a story about the yeah. discovery of an empty tomb, they probably wouldn't have made up that women had found him because women yeah. often, they weren't even seen as a credible source back then, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Donovan. Um, so th that's exactly right. It, in fact, I mentioned the criteria of authenticity earlier. This, is, this would be one of them, the criterion of embarrassment, they say. So what historians would say is if an account contains an embarrassing detail, a detail that would have been embarrassing to the early church, yeah. it's probably more likely to be true than not. Right. So uh, even having women discover the tomb, that that was scandalous. I mean, if you read through the four gospels, that's what you see, right? That's what's recorded. Now think about think about it this way. If you're creating, fabricating this story wholesale, that's yeah. not what you do. You have men discovering the tomb because men can actually serve as uh, legal witnesses in the court of law, right? Um, women in, back in those days in the... Uh, especially in the Jewish community, they weren't like considered to be uh, credible sources, credible eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, if you read uh, the so-called gospel of Peter, um, so this, this is the sort of a, a Gnostic gospel, as they call it. And this was written, I think the gospel of Peter was written during the second half of the second century. So uh, around 150 AD, um, and so th this comes pretty late. Yeah. Now, if this is a resurrection account, and if you actually read it, guess who discovers the empty tomb? It's not the women, it's the men. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. so you're already seeing this. It's a bit of an embarrassing kind of a thing. Yeah. And uh, also later, uh, one of the early church fathers, one of the early church leaders named Oregon was yeah. uh, writing his writing this thing against this pagan thinker named Celsus. And Celsus was actually mocking Christians precisely on this point that, you know, the, the discoverers of the empty tomb were women. And so then Oregon has to write, you know, write a response to this one and so forth. And so this was an embarrassing thing, right? Both for Christians and this was kind of not, maybe not scandalous, but it, it was odd for the pagans looking at this going, yeah, you know, what's the deal with this? Um, 
In fact, the second fact that I mentioned earlier about uh, how Jesus was buried by the Jewish councilman Joseph of Arimathea yeah. also passes the criterion of embarrassment. Yeah, Again, yeah. why would that be? Because Joseph of Arimathea was one of the Jewish council members, the Sanhedrin, who, as far as the Christians were concerned, in their view, this was the group that you know orchestrated deicide, right? They killed the son of God himself by leveraging the Roman authority to execute people. Yeah. Right. So if you're going to have anybody bury Jesus, it's not going to be a Jewish councilman. And yet that's what we see right in, in the account. Uh, for example, in Matthew talks about how he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. And yeah. so th those are some of the reasons why um, wow. just a handful of reasons why scholars generally accept these five facts. Um, well, yeah. Sorry, I know I got you on a little bit of a rabbit trail there, so we'll try to get yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. So we're you're you're basically saying that one of the explanations of the empty tomb was that disciples stole the body, and we've just debunked that. If they had stolen the body, they would have come up with a much different story. And there's a whole bunch of other things, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the other ways that people tried to explain away or hmm. naturally understand the empty tomb and yep. five things? Uh, a theory that's popular today is the hallucination theory. Uh, so guys like Gert Ludemann, who's an atheist historian, he would hold to this. Uh, and by the way, he would accept, I think, all of these five facts. Maybe, he, I don't know if he accepts the empty tomb um, one, but he, I, I think he might. Uh, I, don't quote me on it, but he accepts most, if not all of those five facts and, and more. Uh, and he would hold to the... Uh, hallucination hypothesis. So according to this, basically, uh, these disciples, they loved Jesus so much, and they couldn't cope with the fact that their beloved leader just died. And so then in their grief, they started seeing Jesus, right? And, and thought that he came back from the dead and, and started spreading this message. And so so then, well, let's run those five facts again. Um, it would explain, it would account for Jesus' death, Sure, burial. Now here's the problem, empty tomb, right? If Jesus remained dead in his tomb, all that the early Jewish and Roman authorities had to do to quash the early Christian movement, and they sure did want to, all they would have to do is just go to the tomb in Jerusalem and produce the dead body of Jesus. And that would have been the end of Christianity yeah. right from the get-go. Yeah. Um, so that that's a bit of a problem. Um, it might explain the fact that the, disciples saw what they believed to be Jesus. But here's another problem. It wouldn't have led to the disciples actually sincerely, suddenly and sincerely believing that God raised Jesus from the dead. And the reason is this. Um, Jesus, when you have a hallucination, a hallucination is basically experiencing something that's not there, right? And so you might see something that's not there. You might you know, hear something that's not real, that sort of a thing. And this is a psychological phenomenon that's happening in your brain. Yeah. And so let's put it this way. Uh, it's like a dream. If I have a dream tonight, you know, and I, in this dream, I'm having this wonderful vanilla ice cream and I'm visiting with you and Kirsten and we're all partaking, right? You're not going to come to me tomorrow and say, oh, that was some really good ice cream, wasn't it? It doesn't happen, right? This is a dream. This is in my head. You're not experiencing this. And hallucinations are like that, right? But if you read the 
gospel accounts, what you see is Jesus appeared to um, many people at different times. And here's another thing. Usually when you have a hallucination, it tends to be unimodal. What that means is that one of your senses are involved. One, maybe two of your senses are involved. So you might see something out of the corner of your eye that's not really there. You might hear something or you might feel a kind of a ghost touch somewhere on your shoulder or something like that. Uh, usually it's only one or maybe two senses that are involved. But with Jesus, it was just everything, right? They, they saw him, they heard him, they touched him, they ate with him. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke goes out of his way to show you that this wasn't just some apparition because Jesus shows up and what he does is, you guys got any food? I'm hungry. Yeah. So he's sitting down eating. Everybody's watching, right? <laughs> and Jesus is like, well, can a ghost do that, right? And so Luke is trying to show like this was a flesh and blood person of Jesus Christ that came back from the dead, right? And so he was kind of going out of his way to make the point that this is not just some ghost that appeared. At any rate, back then, the idea of a resurrection, because today some people talk about how Jesus spiritually rose from the dead. Like uh, historians like Rudolf Bultmann was kind of, famed for saying that right jesus didn't actually physically rise from the dead but he spiritually rose from the dead and he lives inside our hearts that sort of a thing now in the first century palestine jewish communities that would have been just what are you talking about that's not what a resurrection is that doesn't even make sense yeah. That's a contradiction in terms. The, their understanding of a resurrection, or in Greek, anastasis, that anastasis was very much a physical thing. If you don't rise from the dead physically, there is no resurrection. Yeah. Right? And, and so this idea of spiritual resurrection, it just doesn't fit the, yeah. the scripture text there. And so, yeah, and, and so because he appeared to so many people, in fact, Luke uh, records that Jesus appeared to his disciples over the course of 40 days. So that's a long time repeatedly showing up to these guys. And they're not going to be, you know, like if they hallucinated, I don't think it, it would have led to something like the early church movement. Right. And so I, I think on that, um, the hy hallucination hypothesis also fails. Well, yeah. And you got the testimony of a guy like Peter. I know you're going to talk a little bit about Paul, but you see this mm -hmm. guy, Peter, who, you know, he's fearful. He's, he's mm -hmm. like, after Jesus dies, he basically, or is crucified. He, you know, he basically hermits away. He goes back to what's comfortable. He fishes, he's timid, he's scared. You know, he had just denied right. knowing Christ. And yeah. then you read like literally what would it be a hundred days after Jesus's resurrection peter is the guy that is preaching boldly he's filled with faith he's filled with life like yeah yeah you can't really hallucinate that kind of transformation right <laughs> yeah and it wasn't just him either right it was john and it was all the others who experienced something and they all turned their lives around and they were willing to go to their deaths for it hallucinations don't tend to do that right and so <laughs> this is this is a sort of um um like when you have a hallucination, you have to be predisposed to it, right? Yeah. So, it, for example, you may hear some stories of, you know, different people you know, going to some holy site and then seeing something that's supernatural, that sort of thing. And some people might say, well, that that's just hallucination because they're already, these are the kinds of people who want to see these sorts of things. So they're predisposed to it. Now, with the early disciples, they were not expecting this. Again, because it goes contrary to 
contrary to their Jewish beliefs, right, about just a guy, just God raising just a single person, an individual from the dead, or uh, that this was the Messiah that's going to save them, right, from their sins. You know, they were thinking about Rome, right, and how the Messiah is going to drive out the Roman Empire. So they were not expecting any of this, really. And so, and then you have guys like uh, Thomas, who was a doubter. He was not predisposed to believing that Jesus rose from the dead uh, mm -hmm. physically. And then uh, you have guys like James, who was yeah. a brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic. He later became a leader in the church. And he, uh, think about this. I mean, you have a brother, right? Mm -hmm. What would it take for you to believe that <laughs> your brother is the Lord of the universe, right? <laughs> if if Adam came to you and said, hey, D, I don't know how to tell you this, man, but I am the Lord of the universe. <laughs> I'm the Messiah. <laughs> yeah, you seriously need to like bow down and worship me. I forgive you your sins, my son. You know, yeah. that sort of thing. Like you, you're not thinking, oh my goodness, he's the Messiah. You're thinking you need to check yourself into an institution. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what, what would it take for a brother mm. that, that you grew up with to believe yeah. That you are the Messiah, right? And so James uh, in the Gospel of John and other elsewhere too tells us that Jesus' family didn't really believe he was, uh, he was the Messiah. You remember the story of uh, Jesus' mother and his brothers and sisters coming to see Jesus. And Jesus is like, well, who are my mother and who are my brothers and sisters? You know, people who do the will of God kind of thing. And it says that uh, the family thought he was crazy. Yeah. And in the Gospel of John, his brothers are his brothers are kind of, well, go to Jerusalem and do your miracles, do your wonders, you know, and that sort of thing. And John tells us that they were skeptics as well. And James is one of them, right? And and yet he came around to believe and he went to his death for he Josephus, this Romano Jewish historian, uh, later records that yeah, James was actually stoned to death because of this claim. Um, so he was willing to go to his death defending that his brother was the Messiah. Uh, and then the last one I would mention is Paul, who was certainly not predisposed to believing that Jesus would rise from the dead. Um, he was an enemy of the church. He persecuted the church, right? Yeah. And he even says that in First Corinthians 15, that Jesus appeared to him as one untimely born, right? Because he was the least of the, the apostles who persecuted the church before, and he turned around. And so... Yeah, that's why I think the hallucination theory fails. Totally. Yeah. So I know you've got a few other um, naturalistic mm -hmm. explanations that people have that you, yeah, you want to get into. Go right. <laughs> yeah. Ahead. Uh, this one's really fun. The lost twin theory. Um, yeah, I've never heard this one before. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you might think this is actually like outlandish, <laughs> but actually, the lost twin theory, if this theory is successful, like I mean it actually explains a lot of different facts, but I think it ultimately fails. Um, it yeah. just seems a little desperate though, if you ask yeah. for my opinion. It's like the parent um, trap. Sorry? It's like the parent trap, like the long con parent trap, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so according to this theory, um, Jesus had a twin brother that nobody really knew anything about. And so after Jesus died, he showed up and he pretended to be Jesus. And people thought, oh my goodness, Jesus came back from the dead. The problem with this is, I mean, you would think that if you read the gospel of Luke, now Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that, um, that he carefully uh, examined all of these things right, to write an orderly account for this guy, Theophilus. 
And um, what a lot of scholars say is that he uh, probably had access to Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would explain then why he has the most detailed nativity account or the birth of Jesus account out of all the gospels. Um, Now, if that's the case, like you would think that Mary would tell Luke about this twin brother that Jesus had that nobody knew about. Right. But anyway, uh, even if that's not the case, like even if Luke didn't have access to Mary, what you have to understand is, okay, according to this theory, Jesus died. Yes. He was buried. Yes. But again, the empty tomb is the problem, right? Uh, And I don't think the disciples would have been convinced that this was Jesus. Now, mind you, these guys follow Jesus for three years. Say an an imposter turns up and starts acting like, you know, impostering as as Jesus. They're going to be thinking, okay, hang on a second. What did he just call Kephas? Like, what what did he just call Peter? Um, Wait a minute. That's not the name that he uses for James. Yeah. Hang on a second. Why doesn't he laugh at that inside joke? Jesus always laughs at that inside joke, right? They spent a long time with him traveling together, and they would have noticed that something was up. I mean, it's nigh impossible for an imposter that just kind of turns up later to impersonate somebody so perfectly that he can fool the people that Jesus traveled with with for three years. I just don't think that's very likely at all. Um, and, And so I don't think the disciples would have been convinced. Um, so I, I think that also fails. Now, uh, one of the one of my favorite naturalistic theories is the swoon theory. Okay. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time here because uh, the swoon theory says that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. He kind of fainted in the heat of it all, in the pain of it all. And then they, uh, they put him away in the tomb. And over the weekend, in the coolness of the tomb, he was sort of revived and he escaped from the tomb. And then, um, you know, people thought, you know, oh my goodness, he came back from the dead, yada, yada, yada. <clears throat> now, here's the problem. Right from the get-go, it doesn't account for the fact that Jesus actually died by Roman crucifixion. So here, this is helpful for both Christians and non-Christians to kind of hear about how a crucifixion, Roman crucifixion happened. So what we read about in the Gospels is that Jesus was actually flogged. Now, I used to think that when I read the word flogged, like I thought like Indiana Jones, right? You know, that's the kind of uh, whip that I was thinking. But no, if you, have you seen The Passion of Christ, that movie? Yeah. Remember that scene where Jesus is about to be flogged, but this Roman soldier has the cat of nine tails and he strikes the table and what happens? It sticks. Mm-hmm. So cat of nine tails, how it works is, so, so you have a shaft for the handle, and then it's got leather thongs. And woven, woven with these uh, leather thongs are, you know, chunks of metal. And then, you know, something sharp, like pieces of bones or metal or something like that. So what happens is, as you're struck, the chunks of metal would strike and soften your tissue which the shrapnel would then latch onto. And when you pull, you're literally ripping the skin off, right? And so this is not just, you know, kind of a whip, Indiana Jones whip. No, this is something that actually tears your skin out. 
Now, traditionally, it is said that uh, Jesus received 40 lashes minus one because the tradition is the 40th strike would kill the prisoner. But mind you, this was before the days of prisoners' rights. Likely what happened was Jesus got struck way more times than that. Now, if you remember the movie, I mean, Mel Gibson is taking some uh, artistic license here, but you remember when after Jesus was flogged and dragged away, his mother Mary comes, right? And she's trying to kind of clean up the blood of her son, right? But, but it's just not enough. There's just way too much blood. Um, that is artistic license, but I think it's, it's a somewhat accurate portrayal because as your skin is being ripped off, Jesus already lost a lot of blood. Okay. And mind you, he's also got this crown of thorns in his head. Now, when I was in Israel, uh, years ago now, um, I actually, they, they actually have replicas of, you know, like crowns, crowns of thorns made with the same kind of wood. Now, I used to think crown of thorns, like rose bushes, that sort of thing. No, like this is like hardwood stuff with thorns like this long, right? And it was just, and he's got this on his head. And now he has to carry the cross. Now, traditionally, what we see is Jesus carrying the whole cross. Likely, that's not what happened. Um, they usually had the vertical stake at the execution site. So Jesus would have had to carry the, the cross beam. But he's already lost a lot of blood. He's dehydrated. He just doesn't have the strength to carry this. And so Simon of Cyrene gets uh, uh, conscripted by the Roman soldier to carry it for him. So he finally gets to the crucifixion site. The guys rip the clothes off of him. Mind you, he had been bleeding. He's got open wounds everywhere. It would have stuck to his wounds, which then they proceed to rip off of him. They lay him across the beam, dislocating his shoulders. And then they put these huge nails through the wrist. Now, often what you see is you see the nail going through Jesus' hands in different sculptures and things like that. But um, that would have ripped right out because of the weight of his body. So they typically put it right through the wrist so that the bones would lock in and it would keep the prisoner up there. Now, when that goes through... Um, there are all these nerves running through your arm, right? Just imagine grabbing a pair of pliers and just twisting it, right? That's what he's feeling, right? And and then one going through his feet as well. Now he's hanging. Now crucifixion is death by asphyxiation. So what happens is when you're hanging up like this, right? You really can't breathe in much. So you actually have to push yourself up, right? To breathe in and then you go down. Right? And then you have to push yourself up again to breathe in and then go down. And sometimes you did that for days. Um, and, and eventually you can't do that anymore because you're too tired. And then you asphyxiate. You die from suffocation. Um, now, what happened in the case of Jesus is – now, uh, if you want to speed up the process, what they, the Roman soldiers would do is they would break the legs of the criminal, because they, then they can't push themselves up. They would die asphyxia pretty much immediately. In the case of Jesus, uh, the, the soldiers came to him and saw that he was already dead. So then the centurion is like, just make sure he's really dead. So then they stuck a spear through his side, right? Puncturing his lungs and his heart. Now, at, at that point, what would, what would happen is, now let's take a few steps back. Now, Jesus is hanging there. He is pushing himself up and down. And he's rubbing his 
exposed raw back against the coarse wood and he's trying desperately to breathe. And what uh, medical experts would say is that uh, this would, um, as he is asphyxiating, his heartbeat would start to go irregular and there's this uh, plural effusion happens. So this uh, layer of water starts building up around the lungs and the heart. And finally, as the just before death, the heartbeat goes irregular. And that's when some scholars say that's probably how Jesus knew he was going to die. So father into your hands, I commit my spirit and he breathed his last. So then the woman soldier comes, sticks his spear into the side. And when he pulled out, now this is what John says. John says, and blood and water came out. Now he knew nothing about plural effusion, but whatever he recorded, he saw he saw correctly. That's what we would expect to see. Now, why do I tell you all of this? For a couple of reasons. One is, imagine this going through this. How do you expect somebody like that to just to be revived in the coolness of the tomb? He would have to first break through, you know, pounds and pounds of cloth and everything in his state push away tons of uh, tons worth of stone blocking the entrance of the tomb, hobble over to the upper room, right? Knock, knock. Peter opens the door. Hey, Peter, resurrection. You know, that's just not going to happen. If Peter were to see that, he, he would have thought, he, didn't, he wouldn't have thought, oh my goodness, he came back from the dead. He would have thought, my goodness, he survived, right? And the way they would have uh, rationalized it what would have been okay look um, this sorry you can probably hear my dog from upstairs um, uh, the way they would have justified it is my goodness the the most lethal army in the world tried their best at killing this man and they couldn't surely God's hand is upon him what they don't say is he came back from the dead right so so you can see just how ridiculous the swoon theory becomes now Here's the second reason that I say this, especially for us Christians. We often talk about Jesus dying for our sins. Well, what on earth does that mean? What does it mean to say Jesus died for us? We don't often think about the kind of death that he went through, right? Because often the, the paintings that we see and the, the statues that we see kind of sanitizes the death of Jesus. But man, this was a horrible, horrible death. We don't really understand what it means when we just say with our lips, Jesus died for our sins. So I hope this gives us a better sense of what it means for Jesus to have died for us, right? So now again, the, the swoon theory here fails because of this, yeah. So we've, uh, we've kind of debunked a bunch of the, the mm -hmm. naturalistic hypotheses about uh, Jesus' resurrection. And I'm, I'm emotional just thinking about or hearing you describe Jesus' death. It just, uh, yeah, even just so profound what he went through uh, for love. Oh, and yeah, I think the, uh, it's even, it's interesting because I, just an aside here, one of the things that really is meaningful to me is a prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. Um, it's kind of Jesus' last words with his disciples before he goes to the cross. Mm -hmm. And he prays, Father, I desire that they would be with me where I am. And um, Jesus' prayer is for us that we would be in relationship with him. And that mm -hmm. desire is what was at the heart when Jesus took that punishment, when he went mm -hmm. to death. It's just profound. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whew. Sorry, I'm just <laughs> processing a bit of emotion. <laughs> oh, 
it, it really shook me when I first read about this, because um, yeah. this was the again for as with many Christians, I had a very sanitized view of Jesus' death, but this really brought it to life. And the crucifixion now meant something totally different. Now I can understand why the word crucifixion was something of a swear word in the Roman Empire. It's not just not the kind of word that you bring up in polite company. And now I understand why. Totally. Um, no, that's good. Um, so yeah, let's get back to the resurrection. We've, we've talked about yeah. his death, but what? So if these naturalistic hypotheses don't describe or they can't, explain the five facts that you said earlier resurrection mm -hmm. does and yeah yeah you want to just speak a little bit more there i know there's yeah. more proofs even than just what we've said already yeah I, I think those are probably the most popular naturalistic hypotheses um but i think they all fail for one reason or another um but the the resurrection hypothesis comfortably explains all five facts and more um, so, for example, we already talked about the conversion of James, the brother of Jesus, conversion of Paul. But there, was, there are some other things. Um, mind you, early Christians were all Jews, right? They're yeah. Jews. Somehow they started celebrating. Um, I mean, they, they would take their Sabbath from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So typically we think, okay, they celebrate the Sabbath on Saturday, but somehow they started worshiping on Sunday. What, what does it take for a first century Palestinian Jew, Jewish community to start celebrating like worshiping on Sunday? So that, that's another thing too. But also another thing, mind you, the church started in Jerusalem. Now, uh, a teacher of mine from Biola University, where I took my master's degree in apologetics, his name is Craig Hazen. He's got his PhD in religious studies. So he studied many different religions. And he said this, when, if you're going to start a religion, you don't start with something like a historical event, right? It, it, you come up with something that's kind of hard to verify. And what you don't do is start with a historical claim that other people can check out. Right. And, and mind you, the, in that way, Christianity is a bit weird. Like if there's a box called religion, Christianity doesn't really fit into that comfortably. Um, so mind you, like if the, it, it would have been one thing if the church started in Rome or Alexandria or Antioch, but it started right where Jesus is supposed to have been crucified and supposedly resurrected. Right. You don't start a church in a place like Jerusalem where people can actually go check things out, but that's where it started um, and so on and so forth. So there are other facts like that, that the resurrection hypothesis ex can explain that other naturalistic hypotheses just, I don't think successfully can. Yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah. you, alluded, you alluded to this earlier too, but the explosive growth of the early church as well. Mm -hmm. I think is another one because you're you're talking about a movement that was under persecution not only by the Romans but also mm -hmm. by the Jews and so you're being yeah being persecuted by the people that are kind of your overlords politically but then you're also being persecuted by like your family yeah and, like, the people that you've been in association with you know like yeah. it, if this is all a lie I don't I just don't see how the church grows and explodes like it does. Um, yeah. And, and mind you, like early Christians at first, they were seen as sort of a weird Jewish sect. Totally, but then yeah. but then where the animosity really started developing in the Jewish community was when the Jews revolted against the Romans 
in the 60s AD, and the Christians refused to participate in that war. And that's when they started getting really rejected by by the Jews. And by this time, you know, yeah, they were were hated on on all sides. So yeah, I mean, what 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 does it take for them to take that radical step? Um, if it's just something, I mean, it, Christianity didn't just it, it. Christianity did see a rather huge growth early on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and some people say, hey, you know, like this was uh, Jesus is just a copycat of all these like other pagan dying and rising gods or whatever. Um, I mean, there's a lot to be said there already, but. Uh, what I would say is, if that's the case, it's kind of hard to explain the the birth of the church that was so sudden, yeah. so big right from the get go. Totally, cool. Um, yeah. So I think we've yeah, you've spoken a lot to the reality of the resurrection. Um, mm-hmm. But I think one of the things about this podcast is I I really want it to be practical. I really want it to to be not that what we said already isn't, but what would you say? Like, why is this important that Jesus mm-hmm. wrote? dead what's the big deal like let's just talk about that a bit yeah um as uh, somebody once said i have a personal policy that uh i generally listen to a guy that came back from the dead (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so one one key aspect of this is this that um if jesus did come back from the dead it gives a lot more weight to the kinds of claims that he's made. He, it, it didn't just happen in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, th- there was this kind of religious background that was very much charged that was leading up to the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And so there are things like Jesus uh, described a worldview where you are created by God in a special way. Christians call it Imago Dei or the image of God. Yeah. Um, and you are separated, you're alienated from God because of this thing called sin. And Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You come to me, you will have eternal life. You will be with God forever. Mm-hmm. And and Paul certainly understood this. That's why in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, he is taunting death. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Oh, hell, where is your sting, right? Uh, Now, this may sound all poetic, but he's actually trash-talking death. The greatest uh, weapon of the enemy has just been destroyed because Jesus came back from the dead. He defeated evil. He has atoned for our sins. Now that sin that separated us from God is no more. We can be with God. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can receive the benefit of his atoning sacrifice and you can be with God and with each other for eternity. Like, just like the way it was supposed to be right from the get go, we were supposed to be in right relationship with God and with other people. And we totally botched it. And now here's a chance to go back to the way it was supposed to be. And in fact, I would say in some ways even better because now we understand the cost of rebellion against God. Right. And how sin has ruined our lives, and and even something like COVID nineteen that's going around. It is as Christians we would we believe that this is the result of fall. Uh, this is in a sense something we've done to ourselves, in a yeah. sense, right? And so, um, if Jesus did rise from the dead, everything changes. Let me uh, give you a bit of a personal note. 
uh, like I said earlier, when I was 16, my dad passed away. Um, so my dad, he was on a business trip to Korea and he was supposed to be there for a couple of weeks. Uh, I remember it was February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1996. I was at home and I got a call. I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And this lady on the other line said, you know, it, there was a kind of a second or two of delay. And she said in Korean, hey, hello, is this Steve? I was like, yeah. And I figured this call was from Korea. And she said, is your mother home? So I woke up my uh, my stepmom and she answered the phone. I was playing a video game at the time. You know, I was leading this pixelated soccer team to World Cup glory kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And my stepmom, I, I already noticed that there was a change in her tone. So I figured something was up. I just had no idea what it was. And so then she eventually hung up the phone and my brother just came home at that moment and he saw that she was frazzled. So he asked him, he asked her what's going on. And she said, your dad's in critical condition right now in Korea. So we're going to have to like fly out. And five minutes later, we got another call. So my stepmom answered it and she's like, okay, okay. And she hung up the phone and that's when she said, your father just passed away. So I still remember we packed everything, flew out right away to from Vancouver to Seoul and then from Seoul to Daegu. Um, and I remember seeing my aunt. She's like, your dad's in that room over there. You should probably go see him before they put him away. So I remember walking into the morgue with my brother to my left, with my sister to my right, and I walked in. And at first I didn't see him. So I followed my brother's gaze because I figured he saw him because his complexion had completely changed. And then I saw him right there on this cold metal bed, right? Lying naked with this white piece of cloth draped over his private parts to afford what little dignity that we could afford him. His hair was all disheveled and his eyes were all swollen. And there was a trail of darkened blood running from his nose into his ear as he was lying down. And his lips had this sickening purple and it was just like, what's one thing that's weird about watching a dead person is, you know, I, every night I actually go into my kid's room to make sure to tuck them in again, because usually they've kicked away the blankies and things like that. And I also, if they are not moving, I kind of watch for a few seconds to make sure their chest is rising and falling, right? Oh, okay. They're breathing. Good. But it's really weird watching a dead person, just how still that person is not a single inch of movement, right? And and I remember thinking to myself, just I guess my brain wasn't quite engaging with this, didn't understand what was going on, and it just felt like my dad was going to sit up again, you know, look at me. Mm. Recognition would return to his eyes. And I'm just thinking, no way, man. He's He's got to sit up. Just yeah. sit up and look at me, right? He never did. Now, here's the problem. How am I supposed to know what lies on the other side? So there's this chasm called death. How am I going to know what's on the other side? Think of it this way. Um, Let's say we're back in the 1800s and I'm living in Canada and my grandmother is in Korea. How am I supposed to know how she's doing over there? Either I would have to go there or she would have to come to me, right? It's kind of like that. There's this chasm called death. How am I supposed to know what it's like on the other side. What we need 
is somebody who's had a death experience, not near-death experience, death experience. And what we have in Christianity is that person who's had a death experience, not only that, defeated death and opened the way for you and me to be in right relationship with God and with each other Mm. and living in the way we were designed to live to our own flourishing, right? And that's what excites me about the resurrection is, I mean, often people think heaven is this place where you just kind of go in a disembodied way and you just sit on a cloud playing harps and eating cream cheese or something like that. Actually, the Christian understanding of heaven, the core of it is to be in the presence of God, Mm -hmm. right? That is, that's how we started in the garden of Eden. And if you read at the end of the, the Bible in the book of revelation in chapter 20 or 21, there's proclamation is made by this angel saying, yeah, everything's done. Now the dwelling place of God is with his people. They will be his people and he will be their God. That is the climax. That's what we're leading up to, right? And Jesus was basically restoring that presence of God to us. Emmanuel, God with us, that was his name, right? And he gives us his spirit when we accept him. So in a sense, heaven has started for us. We have a foretaste of it, you and me. And my desire is that every person would enjoy that foretaste of heaven, knowing that the fullness of it is coming. When new heaven comes down to new earth and we live in the presence of God with each other, loving God, loving each other, like the way we were designed to live. And that is my desire. Hey, listen, uh, some of you viewers who, who are watching this, if you don't know Jesus, man, like, can I just encourage you? Don't give up. Keep searching, right? Talk to somebody. If you have questions, Let's, let's talk. Let's figure this stuff out. And, and because we feel like we're sitting on this gold mine here and, and we have a hard time sharing it with other people, right? And for, for us Christians, man, just be encouraged to know this year as, as we celebrate Easter, that this is just not some wish fulfillment. I mean, it is that in a real sense, right? Jesus Christ fulfills the deepest longings in our hearts, But it's not just that. It is wish fulfillment based in reality. And I think we have good historical reason to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Um, So that is my encouragement to you. So good. Jesus is the living, talking, eternal life. Mm -hmm. And he has come to us so that we can be with him. So good. Wow. And I, even as you're talking, I just, it stands out to me, like the hope that we have. You know, like in the midst of this COVID crisis, there's so much. I think one of the things that can easily happen is we just become hopeless. It can be so overwhelming and so dark, but we have light. We have a hope, and that hope is the resurrected Christ. Uh, The, uh, yeah, I've heard two really kind of just short reflections that I want to share before we wrap up. The first Mm. was... um, uh, a pastor out of Portland was talking about anxiety and uh, his name is John Mark Comer. And he said, um, he said, anxiety is when we picture our future without Christ in it. (laughs) Mm. And it's crazy how, when you bring in the perspective of Christ's resurrection and his power and his victory over death, we don't need to live without hope. We can have hope. Anxiety doesn't need to grip our hearts because we know that we have a risen King. Um, And the second thing is uh, I don't know if you've seen this video circulating on Facebook, Steve, but there's a 
it's it's an incredibly powerful video someone filming from their apartment and it's over a slum in brazil and the people are singing because he lives in like mm. and it's just overwhelmingly loud and uh for those of you who don't know that song it's a it's an old classic by a guy named bill gaither but it's because he lives i can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because i know he holds the future life is worth the living just because he lives i think that's the hope that we have and the hope is founded in a real true event the resurrection of our of our lord jesus and um, yeah i think in the midst of however difficult and how hard this covid coronavirus situation is going to get we we still have a hope again it doesn't mean that we deny that there's pain and suffering but it means that in the midst of that we see our future with christ in it we see it with christ as alive and um one who actually is sympathetic towards the struggling and and the hurt and who meets us in that place uh, well i just i'm really encouraged today um, yeah, thank you so much, Steve. I think that that's just incredible. And, and before I let you go, I just want to hear, why don't you just share a little bit about your, you work for something called Apologetics Canada. Mm -hmm. I'd love to connect people watching with Apologetics Canada. And I know yeah. you also run a podcast and your podcast is awesome. Uh, I listen to it quite often. And so I just, why don't you just talk a little bit about kind of how people can get connected with what you're doing? Yeah. Sure yeah. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I do work with a nonprofit called Apologetics Canada. Uh, we have a website. If you want to find out more about who we are and what we do, go to apologeticscanada.com. Um, we are an organization dedicated to resourcing churches so the churches can equip Christians um, to engage culture. Um, and so you, when you go there, you'll see lots of different kinds of resources. Um, we have a weekly podcast that I used to host. Now that I'm here, I don't do that anymore, but uh, I still get involved from time to time. Uh, it's a great, usually a half hour episode you'll hear. Um, so that's a weekly thing. Uh, you, you can check that out. If you're a parent of young kids, we also have a podcast called the Human Project for Kids podcast. You can check that out as well. Um, so yeah, th there are lots of resources that you can check out there. Um, yeah, I also serve at uh, Spruce Grove Alliance Church as the pastor of apologetics. So if you happen to be in the area, uh, once this whole pandemic thing blows over, and if you're in the area, feel free to come and say hi, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to chat with you. Um, so on and so forth. So thank you. Well, thank you, Steve. Bless you. Bless your ministry. Bless your family. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm so encouraged today and look forward to the next time we have you on as you talk about um, how we apply apologetics in a more practical way, even in how we read the Bible. I'm really looking forward yeah. to that conversation in a bit. So thank For you. For so sure. So one of the things that we want to do with the podcast is after each episode, have something super practical for you to do. And so what I want you to do is just think about... Um, Think about that interview that you just watched. What an amazing guy Steve is. He's just such a thoughtful person and it's such, he's got such an amazing heart. So it was so fun to be able to have that conversation with him. But what I want you to do is just take some time to think about that interview and uh, two or three things that, that really stood out for you that helped you to understand um, wh whether or not uh, Jesus' resurrection is something that actually happened. Um, and I also wanna just give you a moment, if you are somebody who is not in a relationship with God yet, um, the simplest way, I think, to, to really start that journey is, by, um, is just by, by saying three different things. I'm sorry. 
The first thing to say is I'm sorry. We've tried to, to own, we've tried to do life on our own strength. I'm sorry, God. Thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for paying the price. Uh, thank you for uh, doing, <clears throat> excuse me, thank you for doing what you had to do to, to build relationship with me. And please come into my life, fill me with your spirit that I would, would uh, be able to uh, follow you. With. So I wanna encourage you today, if, if you're new to this whole Christianity thing or you have questions, um, just ask God if he's real to show himself to you. Even in the midst of this crisis, I believe that he can. Um, but again, those three questions, I'm sorry, thank you, please. Or sorry, those three thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah, let me pray for you. God, thank you for what we were able to learn today. Thank you for what we were able to hear today. Just pray that, the, that we have shared together, the words that we have heard would, would be increasing our, our trust and our faith today. Um, for those who may not know Jesus yet, or maybe have questions, I just pray that they would, would really find relationships and people to give them answers. God, I pray for an openness to you and your word. Uh, and yeah, if there are those who, uh, who would like to pray that prayer, I'm sorry. Thank you, please. May they do that right now. Yeah, we thank you for what you've spoken today and, what, uh, and, and we thank you for your resurrection. What an amazing thing to celebrate. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you soon.